Blog Talk Radio. We're going back to the beginning of time itself. Coming up next, right here on The Right Stuff. Hi, and welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen, Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Those of you who know, you know how much I enjoy antediluvian fiction. I love it because these authors who write in this unique subgenre of Christian fantasy and Christian fiction know there is a plethora of ideas to explore when we are talking about the world before the flood. And today is a unique offering. Oftentimes when I have showcased antediluvian fiction, it's been from an author who more than often is a male, and they have a different take on these times. But today, the women are taking over this fiction. If I talk to Jean Hofling about her book, Ashes Like Bread, this is a story that explores the relationship, the thoughts of spiritual warfare, and the world that was before the flood through the wives of Lamech. Sound interesting? We'll get to it in just a few moments. As always, I want to thank you for your support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for 10 years. As God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, go to patreon.com slash stuff. To stay up to date with PJC Media, go to pjcmedia.net. Click that pink follow button. You'll never miss a show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at PJC Media for updates, uploads, and more. Go ahead, subscribe today. And so without further ado, I'm going to bring Jean on board. Jean, how you doing? Fine, thank you. I am so glad that you took time out of your schedule to be here with me today. What's really exciting, and to our listeners, I'm going to let you know a little secret. When I reach out to authors, sometimes the author does not always get back with me. And I had sent a message to Jean probably over a year ago because I saw her book called Golden Havala, which is a story about Cain's wife. I saw the book, I read the book, it's been a while though, but I've read the book and I was so enthralled with it, I wanted to have her on the show and she hadn't responded at that time. So then about, I don't know, maybe five or six months ago, I get this message from her. She says, I'm so sorry, I never saw your message. And that's how we're here today. And I'm just so excited, Jean, to have you because you wrote another book in this wonderful world of antediluvian fiction and you're coming at it from a woman's perspective. And I just can't wait to dig into it. So thank you again for being with me. Well, thank you for having me, Parker. I really am honored to talk to you. You're a lot of fun. One of the things I want to do first is let people know who you are. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a mom and grandma. I have four wonderful grandsons. I was a missionary in France and Italy for many years with my husband. We were doing camp work, sort of outward bound type ministry. Um, parallels between the physical and the spiritual. And now I live in Colorado, my home state, involved in my church and with friends and love writing and love having more time to write. Since I had four kids, there were many years when I was homeschooling and taking care of them. I didn't really have the energy or time to write. So I'm, I'm enjoying this now. What's really exciting about your writing is that you write such luscious detail. And your characters are very well-developed, they're very introspective, and they interact in the world around them 
as we suppose we will interact with our world around us. The cultures may be different. The societal mores may be different, but our responses to them are still the same. People have, have broken hearts. They've been jealous. They've had envy. And you have that wonderful sense of continuity in your stories that I thoroughly have enjoyed. And this book, Ashes Like Bread, you're definitely going to love it. So I tell you, dear listener, go ahead, love on my sister, and get your copy today on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Now, Jean, I want people to know a little bit about how you got involved in writing stories in this particular genre of Christian fiction. Well, you know, Toni Morrison said um, that that genius of magical realism, that if uh, you write, you write what you want to read. And it may have existed, but I wasn't seeing any stories around. Uh, see, I wrote, I wrote Golden Havilah some years ago. And I thought, you know, I, I've always wanted to write a book or read a book about uh, the Garden of Eden, what it was like and what it was like for Adam and Eve to be there and then to have to leave, to be exiled from paradise, what it would be like for their for their relationship, what it would be like for the earth around them. So I decided to go in and write that book. And then it just sort of snowballed into, I thought, well, no one, I've never read anything about Lamech, the, a descendant of Cain, and those, the first polygamy on the earth, you know, the first mention of it in the Bible, uh, that uh, this man, Lamech, had two wives, Zilla and Ada. I thought, well, I'm going to write about it, and I'm going to write it like I think it would happen, you know. And so then... From there, I thought, well, I want to write. I want to write about Genesis six one, when the the angels came down and mated with the daughters of men. What was that like? And of course, there's lots and lots of material, extra biblical material on that. And since it's fiction, I could write what I want, you know. So and then I'm currently writing one on um, Enoch, you know, the antediluvian prophet who walked into heaven. So um, that's sort of it. I wanted to read something like this, so I went ahead and wrote it. This genre has been dominated by a lot of men, but what makes yours so unique is that you are a woman and you're writing the stories from a female perspective, which is unique to antediluvian fiction. What I want to do is probe your thoughts about why this genre is so rich in detail. Why do you think more people should explore it? Well, you know, I think if we want to understand present day, if we want to understand why the world is the way it is, we go back to Genesis. So many people feel like, you know, God is just a big meanie and how can he stand, you know, how can he allow all this stuff? Well, he allows all this stuff because of free choice. And then we, we see the, you know, the introduction of human choice and human will in the third chapter of Genesis. So we can understand a whole lot about ourselves, about our world. If we read Genesis, and I, to me, I love history and the older, the better. And it doesn't get any older than the world before the flood. And it's so mysterious. We have it led us. We have all these sort of speculations about what it was like. Uh, and what was it like to, to be living in a pristine world? And what was it like to be shut out of evil? And so it, it, to me, it's just fascinating, much more than any other period of history. What I also like about this particular subgenre of Christian fiction is the fact that there are so many ways you can tell the stories. We are talking about the mother and father of us all. Adam and Eve. We are talking about their descendants who were closer to how the Lord was than we are now because we're many generations removed from it. We're talking about having access to the supernatural world in a way we can only hint at because even these interactions now 
where you have spiritual warfare that's generally more satanic, demonic, evil. But they were able to see things that we can only grasp at. And we're also talking about people who had unique abilities that we have remnants of. And one of those remnants, I would say, would be the lost glory. Oh, yes. Well, and I, I do try to explore that somewhat in my book. And um, this whole idea of the divine light was over them, and they did not know they were naked because they were clothed with God. And so when they sinned, that all fell away, and they saw they were naked, and they saw a whole different aspect of their beings than they had before. One of the remnants of lost glory would be that sense when people get into your space that you do not allow into your space and how your body reacts automatically to that intrusion. And I'm sure all of us have been there where someone is walking toward you. You don't want them in your space. And the closer they get, you start to restrict yourself more. Let's say you're writing something and a person walks into your space, gets too close to you, and your body reacts to it. Like some people get goosebumps. Sometimes people get hair on the back of the neck rising up. Sometimes they sense this person is doing something they don't like. And I've always thought that's a remnant of lost glory because people usually commune with each other. When you get close, when someone's close to you, that barrier is gone. When someone is not close to you and someone's intruding onto your space, then it's being reflected by that withdrawal that you have to that person. That's just one thing I thought about. What, what about you? What are some other, you think, latent or remnants of the world that used to be that we sort of experience now? Because your book does delve into this. You know, it does. And um, like you and I were talking earlier about this idea of a, and you can see this in some of the extra-biblical writings, and people speculate on these things, that that um, I have Adam and Seth and e, Adam and Eve and Seth even we're able to to look into the stars, look past the stars, look into the heavens, and that you know um, that God dwelt on Earth in 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 Eden, on His throne, and the divine council uh, dwelt there. We're always trying to get back to Eden. I mean, there's even a song, "We've got to get ourselves back to the garden," right? And of course, all attempts to create these utopian uh, a utopian world here is always becomes dystopian. I think that is what remnant. We're always trying to get back to something that's perfect. And the ability to, I mean, some people, you and I were talking about, some people still are clairvoyant, or some people can taste sound or various things. Probably that was what God intended, you know, in the beginning for all of us. Um, that You know, scientists tell us we, we only use like 1% of our brain. Well, where's the other part? Where has the other part been? Well, probably in another time, they did use their entire mind, and maybe that's a protection because of sin that you can't use your whole brain anymore. I'm telling you right now, if I have latent superpowers that I'm not using, <laughs> and I knew I could just tap them up in this world, I will be a threat. <laughs> I will be like Galadriel from Lord of the Rings when she says, all shall love me in despair. That would be me, because I know we get that ego, you know, that they... Adam and Eve were innocent. They didn't have that ego that was that's always pressing itself into our experience. And um, I, I think it's it's God's mercy. It's God's mercy that He did not allow them to eat from the tree of life, because then they would have gone on forever in in a sin, sinful and corrupted state. So I mean, there's there's so many things that we we don't like, but you know that's the way it is. Our limitations. You know, some some writers have talked about that human beings were much taller, much bigger than they are now. And of course, you know, 
the world was pristine and food was better and you know there's so many things and we see the um, the age of the average age span drop off dramatically after the flood you know the world changed after the flood and um, it's probably better for us not to live close to a thousand years <laughs> so imagine how much havoc you can wreak in a thousand years we, we, we could, oh i know it's bad enough but you live 70 or 80 years imagine so, that now you said something i want to touch base on you talked about the extra biblical sources and there are people who are reluctant to read these sources because they don't want to be led astray. My personal opinion has been, I don't think you have to take it as the word of God, as much as a look into how Jewish writers and other ancient cultures who have tales from back then, how they viewed the world, because it does give us insight into the ancient world. So what is your opinion about using these extra biblical sources when you are writing the story, Ashes Like Bread? Well, yeah, I, I, to me, I'm like you. I, I just find it fascinating and helpful because to me, having read a number of these, they, there's nothing contradictory there. I mean, if you, if you see something, some detail that contradicts, directly contradicts something in the Bible, you just, you just say, okay, well, whatever. But to me, they only enhance my understanding of Scripture. I don't see anything that, that um, goes against. I don't see anything satanic or occultic or anything like this. The, the book of Adam and Eve really dwells a lot on their repentance after they came out of Eden. And it shows, it talks about Eve standing in cold water for days and days and days in her, in her remorse and her repentance. And how, imagine how horrible she felt having brought down the earth, you know, and, and, and just, and, talking to her husband, trying to get her husband to eat this thing with her and realizing later how awful that was and the fact that he went along with her and that they went against God and then they broke their promise to God. So the, the books of Adam and Eve really go into that. I mean, it's a little over the top to our minds, maybe our, our contemporary minds, but it doesn't matter because it's making a point. And then, of course, the, book of, the books of Enoch, especially the first book of Enoch, not so much the second and third, but the Ethiopian book of Enoch. Just in, to me, it enhances what the Bible says. And what people may not realize is the Bible itself quotes from numerous extra-biblical sources. I mean, there are lists you can find online. And one of those is, you know, in the book of Jude, it quotes directly from the book of Enoch. So um, that's real interesting, too. So it lets you know that there is a cohesion out there that is worth exploring. Now, do you have to take everything at face value? Probably not. But like you said, there's a fascinating element and aspect to this world that makes for such great, rich world building and storytelling. And what's unique about your book, like I said to our listeners earlier, was that you're coming from a womanly perspective. And we're talking about polygamy. We're talking about wise and beauty, about motherhood and seduction. We're talking about falling down from the highest height to the lowest lows. We're talking about making all kind of mistakes. <laughs> we're talking about redemption. And we're talking about learning to be forgiven, learning that happily ever after doesn't always exist, but contentment can. Those are some of the themes that you explore in Ashes Like Bread. So let's go ahead and talk about this. I have to preface this with... Why polygamy? Why Lamech and his daughters? I mean, and his wives? Well, it's just that it's the first mention. Okay. And so having written um, Golden Havilah, 
then I sort of went on to the next generation. And it, I thought, you know, this is just, it's, you know, we even have Enoch, or Lemech, excuse me, Lemech, quoted, you know, a quote from him right there, which doesn't happen every day, even with major Bible characters. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you're, you're giving a glimpse into this God, what kind of person he is, just by this quote, you know, he, he says to his wives, blah, 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 build a young man, and he did all this, and people who've read the book of Genesis would know this, this particular passage. So I just thought, you know, there's enough there that you could, you know, let's let's explore what this was like, this triad, and they were sisters, and, and you know, what was that like? And so you it is sort of you have to build their arc, right? You have to you have to put that def- defect in each of them that's gonna that's going to advance this story. So that's just it. I was just wanting to get on with the next generation. And then my book that follows that is The Next Generation. And then the Phoenix book is The Next Generation. And then, in God willing, I will do I will do a final one in this series on um, Noah. So that's just the reason. You know, and it's, I've never read a story, a fiction, fictional story about Lemek and his wife. So I thought, well, why not? There again, you know, take Toni Morrison's advice. One thing, too, about this is we see, even though Lemek and his wives, we don't see a huge big picture of them. We actually see what it's like to be in a polygamous relationship when we go to Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. And I have always felt bad for Rachel. I mean, not Rachel. I always felt bad for both of them. But I always felt bad for Leah because Leah, she wasn't the favored wife, but she was the legal wife. Can you imagine in seven years, no one has come for you. No no one has wanted to have your, your hand in marriage and you're waiting so your father tricks this man who wants to be with your sister to be with you. And then the next morning he wakes up and he doesn't particularly care for you. Right. But it's just amazing. It's, it's incredible to me. And oh, I'm just speculating about, and I could just think about poor Joseph and one I mean, not Joseph, but Jacob in one hand, it's his father-in-law's fault. On the other hand, if his father-in-law had just said, you got to marry the daughter, the oldest daughter first, he probably would have found her, man. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but again, you can always speculate, and I often imagine that Leah and Rachel had a close relationship before they had to share the same husband, and so you have Zyla and Ada who go through a lot being married to this man. So let's go ahead and just give the biblical reference first, just for people who may not read the Old Testament. Some people weirdly are say, "I'm only New Testament Christian," whatever that means. Tell them what the base of the story is for Lamech and his wife, and then tell us how you expanded that story. Okay, well, uh, it's taken from Genesis 4, verses 19 to 24. This short passage about this man, and he took these two wives, and, you know, uh, Jubilees and Jasher all expand on this a lot, and that they were sisters, and in the notes in my book, I do talk about how um, the Jewish tradition is that... Um, he took one wife for procreation, one wife for pleasure, and that in those days, some of the some of the wives would take these herbs that would, well, in my book, I describe it as numbing the womb so that they wouldn't conceive and lose their beautiful figures, and of course, nothing's changed, you know, <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. So in my book, I, I stand on that sort of Jewish tradition that, that Ada was the woman for procreation and that Zyla was the woman for pleasure. And, of course, it, it sort of falls apart. I wanted you to talk about Zyla's clairvoyance. Well, it's the thing. She's in this 
let's say it's a patriarchal, you know, we don't know anything about a patriarchal culture, that we hear that thrown around all the time. We live in the most free culture in the world. Amen. You know, as far as women's, women's rights, women's freedoms. These people, you know, we don't really know how it was at that point in history. This is very, very early human history, but let's speculate. And, you know, for my purposes, I speculated that that, um, you know, Zyla's father was very threatened by this, that even her mother was threatened by this, that um, they, couldn't, they couldn't handle the fact that she knew the future, that she knew things about people in the clan, that she knew things about the future, that things were going to happen. Uh, this is developed in the Book of Jasher, this idea of a flood, a partial flood, as a precursor to the big flood, you know, to Noah's flood, and as a as so often is the case, God using natural disasters to um, help people repent, help to find repentance. So she's she, she's unappreciated in her clan, and then she she wants to become since I can't become a, um, a a a major prophetess, I could at least become a. She's very bright and she likes to write, and so they're developing a writing system and a reading system, and they're developing a language, as she wants to be a scribe. And then her mother has another baby, and that baby takes up all of her time, and then that baby dies, and now she's, you know, blamed for this, and then another baby is born, and she just takes care of that baby. And um, there's rejection by her father. There are a number of, of, you know, plot points here. So she is being set up for not wanting to be around anymore, and then her, her sister is a very wayward girl, and sister falls in love with a canine. So by this time, um, Cain, of course, according to the Bible, you know, he, he went east of Eden, and we don't exactly know what he did except that he built a city, probably what the world's first city, because there weren't very many people in the world at this point. And of course, I, I expand on what that was like in the land of Nod in my first book, um, Golden Havilah. So the Sethites are, are the you know righteous sons of Adam, the righteous bread, and of course this would be the line that goes through Shem at the flood, the son of Shem, Noah and then Shem. Then through Shem, Christ, the lineage of Christ is developed. In our lives, we get set up for our for our mistakes, mm -hmm. right? There are things that happen to us. And, you know, there's a saying, you know, that sometimes your sin is part of your salvation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who's going to know, who's going to understand the grace of God unless they, you know, really mess up? And, and, the, and not that we have license to mess up and sin, but when we do, we, we I really am not what I thought. <laughs> and I really do need God. I think that's supposed to be the lesson in our lives. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much when we make mistakes because they are for a purpose. There's a quick passage in here where she's talking and remembering these things from long ago. And she makes this statement. She says, a simple existence is God's great gift. Though I am now bent beneath hundreds of years of life, I still admonish the young not to despise simplicity. A contented heart cultivated in one's lowly tent is as medicinal to the body as to the soul. And it's just something that she says, even though I'm hundreds of years old now, I still long and still want a contented life of simplicity. And this is something the young don't always understand, but that the old can appreciate it. Therefore, there's that idiom that says youth is wasted on the young. Sometimes that can be true, but you can also live your best life in your youth. So when you look back, you say, look what I did. 
and I can't do those things anymore. And I've quoted this before, Gene. I was thinking about uh, Jackie Chan. And Jackie Chan had made a comment because he used to do all his own stunts. And he can't do that work anymore. You can't just throw yourself into a building anymore. <laughs> so, um, but he said, he has said something to the effect of do everything you want to do. Do it while you're young. Do it while you can. So he can look back and say, look what I did. And we're not talking about just this um, uh, hedonistic style living. Just, you know, living the adventure, doing what you can do. If you want to become something, go ahead and put your all into it. I'm not talking about hedonism. But I'm talking about following your goals, following your dreams. Don't let fear stop you from doing that. There, even though it's a positivity language, I understood what he was saying because he can't do those things anymore. But he can look back and say, look what I did. And you don't want to live that life of regret. So we're going to have Jean read a quick excerpt from Ashes Like Bread. So go ahead. I'm going to mute myself and read an excerpt. Thank you. Chapter one. It is a mystery the things we are born to know. I was only a little child when I began to see the future, and all these years later, I still sometimes feel the movement of those first visions. The watery predictions and shadows of lonely knowledge I did not ask for will always be part of me, as familiar as waking or sleeping, as familiar as splashing the fragrant waters of the River Eden and across my face on those warm childhood afternoons after play. I was barely old enough to understand what my present life was when it all began, let alone comprehend the archives of the future in that uncanny consciousness that defied the mandates of time. The first visions were innocent enough, seeing children curled in their mother's womb before the women knew they were pregnant, awareness that someone among our people of the Holy Mountain was injured or ill, or knowing that one of the seed-bearing elders would preach at a feast gathering. While I leaned into the curve of my mother's arm and mouthed the words along with him. But my undoing was the vision of a flood that I foretold would cover one third of the earth in my lifetime, sweeping through the unknown charters of that yet mostly unexplored world. No river had ever run its banks before. How could such a thing happen? It was a catastrophe that even our respected Sethite prophets had not discerned and set me at odds with my people. Among the chosen of God, there was not room for variance of thought regarding the established traditions. Too much was at stake in the collective spirit of our clan to withstand the disruption that it brought on them. But all that came later. In the beginning, I led the ordinary life of any young Sethite child. My father, Kenan, and my beautiful mother, Wall, had three sons grown and gone from my mother's tent by the time I was born. She had not expected to conceive again. After deprivation comes fulfillment. She said the day she knew she carried me. I was proof that God was still willing to bless the wife of Tina and the seed bear, the youngest elder of the Sethites. I am told that as soon as I was swaddled and suckled, my father emerged from the birthing tent with me in his arms and my name on his lips. He held me up in the company of the other seed bearers who were gathered in the elders' clearing, where their prayer tents were pitched. When the elders had inspected me, the rest of the Sethites of the mist-shrouded mountain came to gaze on the first daughter of the beautiful wife of Kenan. Our mountain, in its range of lesser peaks, was positioned at the exact center of the earth, directly beneath the pole star. At the northwest end of our summer lay the forbidden garden called Eden. It was in that paradise that Most High God had once walked with our forefathers, Adam and Eve, in a communion of bliss. But by that time, Eden was an untended wilderness. She is Zyla, my father announced, tightening my swaddling cloth. 
the people were surprised by the name. The root of it was akin to an old word for the first shadows ever to fall over Eden on the day the forebears tasted forbidden food and were banished from that shimmering bower of delights. And that is an excerpt from Ashes Like Bread and is book one of the Chronicles of Genesis series. The second book, as she said earlier in the broadcast, dear listener, is called The Sea Bearer's Bride, a supernatural biblical novel. Now, it looks like you have about roughly four books planned for this series, and I'm here for it all. We will be able to have Jean back to explore each one as time permits. So I'm really excited to have you back, Jean. And if you didn't know that, now you do. Um, <laughs> you were coming back. But really enjoyed having you today on the show, and we know what some of your other projects are. Now, if people want to just get a taste of this world, where do you recommend that they start? Or should it, or can they start with ashes like bread? Should they go in order? What would you recommend? Well, I, I mean, if I were I would fire one of your readers, I would start with a Golden Havilah. Okay. That's the page, and that, that sets the, the whole tone with Adam and Eve and their relationship and their relationship with their first children, which we know of Cain and Abel. Um, and according to is it the, either the Book of Jasher, the Book of Jubilees, or the uh, First Book of Adam and Eve, I can't remember which, I'm sorry. Um, these, were, these were sets of twins that Cain and, um, why am I not remembering? Lulua. Lulua were twins, fraternal twins, and that Abel and Aclea were fraternal twins. And so it just goes into, you know, the fall of, you know, the fall of Cain, the murder of Abel, and how different people in the, in the family you know, respond, and it just sets the tone for the rest of the book. So there's a lot for you to discover when you pick up a Jean Hoffling book. So go ahead, pick up one today. You are not going to be disappointed. Jean, this show is always about encouraging authors whom God has given the gift to write to pick up a pen and do so. So go ahead and encourage that aspiring author out there today. Well, absolutely. Like I said, I wrote a book I wanted to read. And if that is a huge motivation. And if you've always thought about, you know, some particular idea, some trope you have in your mind, why not just go for it? I, I feel like there's, it's a lot of work, and I had a lot to learn, especially with my first novel. And, but I, I just put myself to learning it. I, um, my mother died when I was 50, and two days after I turned 50, and I was looking at her body lying on that hospital bed, and, you know, I said, you know, that's me in 30 years. And if I don't do this now, what I always wanted to do, you know, the moment will pass. You know, like Parker was saying, you you better do it now because we all think we have this future. We don't necessarily. And I think procrastination really, you know, bless the gifts God's given us. So, you know, I decided I was going to write a book and get it on an editor's desk before Thanksgiving of that year. And I already had half of it written. And this was a long time ago, and it was a nonfiction. It was a more of a memoir style. And I did. I had it on um, a guy's desk, and he accepted the book and published it. So, I mean, I just really decided I was going to do this. And it takes certainly takes um, discipline and concerted effort. And, you know, I think writing, as Parker and many others would say, it can be kind of a lonely life. And you have to really believe in what you're writing. And you have to really believe that it's something that the world needs. Otherwise, you get too discouraged. And the last thing we want for you, dear aspiring writer, is for you to be discouraged. So take courage. 
from what Jean has said, go ahead, pick up the pen, and write stuff. Jean, thank you so much for being with me today. Really enjoyed having you. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you online? Well, jeanhalsing.com is my website. I am on um, Facebook. I'm not much of a social media person, but I do have a Gene Hoekling page on Facebook, as well as my Gene Hoekling, Gene Johnson Hoekling page on Facebook. But, you know, if you want to email or something, certainly uh, my website is a place to do that. Gene, thank you for being with us again. I cannot wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Thank you so much, Parker. It's really been fun. And we were talking today to Jean Hoefling. She is the author of the book, Ashes Like Bread, a supernatural biblical novel, which is book one of Chronicles of Genesis series. If you love antediluvian fiction, if you love wondering about the world that once was, if you want to delve into a story before the flood, if you want to be immersed in a world of spirits and interesting places, of people and characters who act a lot like you with just different settings. This is the book for you. Go ahead and pick up your copy of Ashes Like Bread and then stay tuned for the second book in the series, The Seed Bearer's Bride. Go ahead, pick up a Gene Hoffling book today. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J, and you have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.